Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, Editor-in-Chief at Business Insider, and back from his travels around the world is David Scott. Fantastic to be back, Paul. Thank you. Did you have a good time? I had a very good time. I've uh, come back uh, a little bit heavier, uh, so the, uh, the full English breakfast, full Irish breakfast, full Scottish breakfast, and uh, a few pints in between have uh, sorted me out nicely. Very good. And um, just quickly, uh, so you, you were in Brexit country and uh, also in Ireland where they'd been through a, a very significant recession. Any sort of key takeouts, anything that you saw over there that was um, that really caught your eye? I didn't make it to London, but uh, I landed in, uh, in Manchester, so I can tell you that uh, it's very, very cheap uh, from a... Australian perspective, going over there to go and uh, to go and buy things day to day, I found it very remarkable how cheap it was. More expensive in Ireland uh, and and Scotland, uh, and. Dublin in particular was absolutely humming. I actually found it quite amusing when we were there. There was this uh, this big newspaper splash, and the story of the day was that uh, rents had risen 14% year on year. It was the fastest pace of growth, and there was a whole lot of uh, discussion about uh, trying to go and get people to go and uh, use their vacant properties and ways to go and, and force that to occur. So I, I, did, I, I thought I almost I almost thought uh, you know it was like uh, you know being back home for a second. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, look, great to have you back, mate. Um, and we're also joined on the show uh, by Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Uh, Shane, a regular guest on the show. Uh, great to have you back. Great to be back. Uh, we've got a packed agenda. Um, this is like, I think it's a little bit like putting the band back together. It's great. Uh, packed agenda. Um, there's a little bit of volatility back in markets, t- just a tiny bit. Uh, we'll touch on that. And uh, we're going to look at the bank tax, obviously, and the Australian data this week. Um, another set of uninspiring wage price numbers and uh, some somewhat confusing data uh, for jobs data, um, as it uh, t- typically tends to be these days. Um, uh, but we're going to, I'm just going to quickly touch on some of the things that have happened in Washington. Um, I've got a super quick summary of everything that's happened in the last few days. And I thought it might be useful for listeners because I know busy people keep saying to me that they're really struggling to keep up. Okay. So uh, I got this summary. Uh, it was kindly provided by Bob Bryan, who's one of the uh, policy reporters uh, in New York. And he uh, he smashed this out for me uh, this morning. So here we go. On Monday, the Washington Post revealed that do- uh, President Trump disclosed top secret information regarding an ISIS threat to high-ranking Russian di- diplomats days after firing former FBI director James Comey. Now, Comey was investigating ties between Trump's campaign and Russian government officials. Tuesday brought the disclosure that Comey had kept records of his conversations with Trump, which in part included the little tidbit that uh, Trump had asked him to ease up his investigation into former national security advisor Michael Flynn. Now, stay with me. Now, Flynn was the guy at the center of the Russian investigation. Now, then on Wednesday, the Department of Justice announced it had appointed a special counsel to oversee the Trump-Russia investigation to ensure, to ensure an, an independent process, casting even more uncertainty on the Trump campaign's ties. And I suppose the important thing in terms of uh, uh, where we sit in markets is that this casts 
uh, uncertainty over Trump's economic policy agenda, which was the big thing that led to that sort of uh, uh, rally in markets over uh, December, January. Shane, what, it, what have you made of all of this? Well, it's not very nice. I, I guess uh, you know, ever since Trump was elected, the, the debate was about when he would be impeached, <laughs> um, and I always thought at some point he would be. But um, I think we're still a fair way away from that. C- certainly, the last two weeks have not been good for Trump. Um, major bungles there. You kind of wonder whether he's capable of anything else. Um, thing is, though, I think there's a common narrative out there that all of the rally in shares since November is the Trump trade. Um, and that that's now over and will go in reverse because Trump's in so much trouble and his policies won't get up. And you can take issue with both sides of that. The first point is that um, I think the real reason, the bulk of the reason that markets rallied worldwide was because of the substantial improvement in economic conditions and the surge in profits. Um, we've seen two profit reporting seasons since in the US, since uh, the election and profits in the US up 14% record highs, up 15% in Japan, thereabouts up 25% or so in Europe. I think that's the main reason why markets have gone higher. And that improvement has been everywhere. It hasn't just been the US. So Trump's a bit of cream on the top, but I don't think he was the main driver of the rally. The other important point is whether he's going to be impeached soon, how long this process will take. I think uh, you know, the history of these things gives you a mixed message. Obviously, back in the days of Watergate, that was horrible for US shares, but there was other things going on at the time which were also terrible, such as stagflation, you know, the OPEC crisis, uh, Vietnam War coming to an end, economic conditions were plain horrible. Um, and out of interest, uh, Nixon was never impeached. He resigned before they could do that. That's right. Um, the other one, of course, is Clinton. And of course, uh, Clinton was impeached, but, uh, of course, um, he was never forced out of office because the Senate decided uh, not to force him out of office. The Republicans didn't get enough votes for that. Um, but there wasn't that much impact on share markets at the time. In fact, share markets at the time were focused on the tech boom back in those days. Um, but the bottom line in all of this is that the uh, it'll be the House that decides whether he gets impeached or not. I can't see a Republican House impeaching uh, Trump given what we know at, at present. Of course, if, if there's clear criminality, different story, but I can't see them doing that. A Democrat House probably would, though, and the Democrats are likely to get control of the House come the midterms, midterms November 2018. Um, and then, of course, uh, it will depend what the Senate says, and I think an unlikely yeah, – th- th- this is a debatable one, but providing that uh, he doesn't get the two-thirds vote in the Senate, then he'll get away with it. Mm. That's what happened with Clinton. But – the, the thing with all of this is it does focus the minds, the Republicans. They've got this short window that they have to get the stuff done. If they want lower tax rates, if they want a reform of Obamacare, if they want to do these sorts of things, they've now got to do it. Otherwise, Before time's running out. Yeah. And I actually I think that uh, there's a good chance that these, these issues around Trump could speed up the whole process um, rather than slow it down. Problem is shares have gone so far so high over a relatively short period, we were due for a correction. Absolutely. And that that's the overlay in all of this, and maybe this was just a trigger for that. But that's what I see it as, it's just a correction. I don't think it's going to see a complete unwind of uh, the rally we've seen over the last year or so. Dave, uh, one of the important points uh, in there is that you have had this uh, generally improving picture globally. Um, it's something we've touched on the show uh, repeatedly. Japan this week uh, posted... Um, you know, um, some more strong uh, GDP numbers, and we're seeing manufacturing, global manufacturing, uh, has been picking up for a while now. It has, uh, but mind you, the other uh, PMI readings for manufacturing surveys have started to go and cool a little bit, but they're still very elevated compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, 
As for you know, Trump uh, and the particular impact on markets, I think that for a, a complete unwind of what we've seen post-election, you need to see him impeached. And as Shane rightly said, I think it's very unlikely that we'll go and see that. Yeah, so there's, it's almost like there's a basically a small Trump premium uh, in in the it, that's priced in uh, at the moment. That's based on this assumption that he will be able to deliver um, infrastructure spending uh, and tax cuts. Um. I kind of think it, it's the Republicans that ultimately do all these things. I mean, he puts things up, and then the, the congressional um, Republicans will sort of um, structure the tax package and the infrastructure and so on. Um, so I think it's really up to them. It's not. It's not just him. Uh, um, I think Republicans agree on one thing: they love tax cuts. We've seen that with Reagan. We saw that with H.W. Uh, Bush. That's what they love to do because they like to starve the beast. You know, if you get taxes down, then uh, how do we get the budget under control? Oh, gee, we've got to cut spending. Um, that's their modus operandi, and I can sort of understand where they're coming from. And I, th- I think they just realise that time's running out. We've got to do this. The Senate in the U.S. is still working on tax reform. They're quite confident they can get through uh, using dynamic scoring, um, which is where you assume stronger growth as a result of the tax cuts to, to, to balance the budget. Um, work is proceeding. My understanding is that the infrastructure package will be announced fairly soon, and it's going to kind of look a bit Australian-like with uh, incentives for states to privatise assets and re- recycle those uh, uh, the proceeds into, into more infrastructure. So I think things will continue. The, the appointment of a special counsel in the last few days is something that will probably die it down a little bit. So this investigation will continue, probably go on for a while. And in the meantime, I think you know, some of these negatives around Trump will, will come out of the headlines for a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because you have this scenario now where we can say, well, you know, when as, as the questions come, which over the last couple of months have been uh, causing all this chaos, we can now say, well, look, it is in the hands of former FBI director Robert Mueller, uh, and he's going to do his work and make his, draw his conclusions, etc. One of the things uh, that is uh, interesting about this is if you ca- cast your mind back to maybe two years ago or so, when everybody was talking about how quiet everything was in markets, um, uh, you, you, the, the volatility events and the changes in, in the direction of markets uh, tended to be driven by data. Um, I wonder if you might um, uh, maybe uh, share with us what, what you think is different about this sort of politics-induced volatility uh, and w- how to help people think about it um, because uh, it's very hard to, I suppose, price uh, what a particular political development mean, means. And Obviously, we've got the Trump situation, but we've seen similar sort of uh, patterns or forces at work in, obviously, Europe, um, the UK, uh, and even this week, uh, Brazil's uh, stock market over overnight uh, melted down. It went limit down uh, at the open, um, and uh, there was an ETF trading uh, in US markets, which was down almost 17%, which is Brazil-linked. Um, so... Um, and it's to do with a, a, a political instability there. The president is uh, is in a, is in some hot water. Um, but maybe Shane, you can you can talk about you know how do you think about this uh, in terms of investments? Well, I, I think the reality is that geopolitics, politics generally, a lot more important than used to be the case. It, it, it seemed as if um, I, I, I guess you could take issue with that. You could say, well, there's always been political impacts through time. Nixon, um, a classic example, back in the seventies. But I, I think it seems as if, you know, I, I spend half of my time worrying about the economics, the other half worrying about the politics. 
Um, we we sort of uh, had the Brexit vote, then we had Trump, then we had the Italian referendum. Had to look at all of those events in terms of what they mean. France, um, and then of course Europe uh, this year with uh, Netherlands and France and so on. Now it turns out Europe's uh, um, turned out to be benign so far. So I, th- I think all you can really do on this, it's, it's a bit different to sort of uh, when you've got economics and financial indicators, you can get the data down and do some analysis on it and look at the relationships and so on and so forth. Um, with geopolitics, you've got to sort of make a bit more of a judgment call, and that involves a bit more intense reading, looking back through history, see what happened with past impeachments, how the process works. Um, in the case of Europe, trying to get an understanding as to which way the Europeans would go after Brexit. There was a general feeling that that's just one domino falling over, all the others would fall over, they'd all leave. The Eurozone would soon be in crisis, falling apart. And of course, uh, the Europeans have actually gone the other way. Um, and so I, I think as we come into these elections, you have to understand the dynamics around it. How much do the people in that country, like the Euro, turns out, in the case of all the elections we've seen in Europe since Brexit, they actually like the Euro. Um, and they've got a scepticism of nationalism, particularly in France. So it's really a case of getting down and understanding the history of the country and how the politics works. Um, that, but there is no doubt that politics is more important these days. And I think one, one thing it does relate to is that we've seen this rise in inequality, some countries more than, le- than others. That's partly what's driving it. So you've seen the shift to the extremes in terms of politics. Um, the centrists aren't as important or aren't as significant as they used to be. And, of course, um, um, but then you've got this other story going on in the emerging world. I think Brazil's always had difficult politics. Um, we had thought that after the impeachment and then removal of Dilma, uh, Dilma Rousseff, the uh, previous president, that would be solved. But there was always issues hanging around the uh, the vice president who's now taken over. Um, so the markets cheered when she left, hoped that Brazil's back on track. It appears that they're not. But at the end of the day, it really requires a lot of reading to try and get an understanding. But it's just interesting lately that um, some of these events that you worry about turned out to be not so bad. You know, Brexit wasn't so bad. Trump election wasn't so bad. The elections in Europe turned out OK. So I often think they provide a buying opportunity. The market comes crashing down and you've got to think, well, is it that bad? Maybe now's the time to buy in. Dave, um, the dynamics in currency markets have changed an awful lot in the last uh, six or eight months, uh, and you watch this uh, all the time. Um, so, um, how have you um, have you seen the price action as as we've gone through these various sort of political crises in various countries, um, and then uh, how that's been washing through in, uh, in particularly in the currencies. Oh, Shane's exactly right. No, we've seen that uh, any nervousness that's been created around a political event uh, that's led to a sell-off in risk assets has uh, has generally been bought. Uh, you've seen that time and time again. Uh, even starting with uh, with Brexit, we saw that uh, obviously the day of Brexit, everything uh, looked like it was going to be the end of the world and whatnot. And then, uh, no. Come, uh, come a few days later, uh, it was back to where it was and, uh, and still moving. Not the pound, obviously, but, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, stocks and, and the like were, uh, were back to where they were and have since pushed higher. Um, the key thing I find with, um, with the political, uh, you know, uh, volatility that's been generated recently is that it's different from data-driven volatility, as you say, because around data-driven volatility, A, you have a time when a data release is going to come out and B, you know likely what the policy response will be from, central banks and the like, uh, you get a, a very poor reading in, and the forward guidance that central banks provide gives the markets a lot of clarity with political side of things. Uh, it's very difficult to go and sort of ascertain exactly where this may go and end up. No one really knows the answer. 
Trump could be impeached. He might not be removed from office. No one knows these things, uh, which leads to a high degree of speculation. And reading and everything is, uh, is, is great as well. But the truth of the matter is that no one truly knows how it will go and play out. Whereas with data, you have an understanding, though. If something's good, central banks are probably more than likely going to start moving towards them, policy normalization or, or policy tightening. But with this, no one exactly knows how it will play out. And so you get these, uh, when you see the sell-offs like we saw on Wall Street this week, you know, um, with a data-driven, with an event-driven, uh, or I suppose economic data-driven um, uh, uh, change uh, in a market, it tends to be very sudden. Um, but we saw the sell-offs uh, uh, this week in stocks and the rally in bonds doing the same thing, Sm- almost a smooth line uh, through the day if you if you watch the, the price action. Um, and uh, this leads me nicely to um, something else that's been uh, happening here in Australia, which has been around the banks. Um, the day of the budget and the following day, we also saw this sort of gradual, persistent sort of sell-off uh, in, in, in in banks in the stocks of the big four, particularly when it emerged that this new tax uh, was going to apply to them. Uh, I think it's interesting that we're seeing the hand of policy. Uh, also in Australia now starting to uh, be it, its effects be felt in the markets. Uh, Shane, I'm wondering if I can get a perspective from, from you on, on how this is playing out. The banks are obviously seething. Um, uh, we've seen the impact on their, their share prices. Uh, what to you is the most likely scenario for how this is going to play out? Well, it seems as if the bank levy will go ahead. Um, the government seems to be determined on that front. Um, and guess, has the support as well, it seems, to go yeah, and get that through. That, that's right. I, I um, it's interesting. The previous precedent, of course, was the mining tax uh, from, or the resource super profit tax, and then um, there was a, a huge backlash against that. And I think that was brought down by the complexity of that tax. There was a, a campaign by the miners. Um, it was seen as perhaps being too onerous, um, and from my perspective, looked to be like a crazy arrangement in terms of the way something would be taxed. Um, um, and, but uh, that, that brought down Kevin Rudd ultimately um, and the tax was watered down and became the mining tax um, far less onerous. I think the situation is different this time around. Um, I, I, I do think it will probably go ahead. There's not enough uh, of a backlash against it. Um, I do believe it sets a bit of a dangerous precedent in the sense that we seem to be going back to a world of a hodgepodge of taxes and levies. Um, which we were meant to clear up with the the GST. Um, I, I do worry a little bit that uh, you know if you're looking to balance the budget, want some revenue to pay for this or that, um, you look around for parts of the economy that are profitable, um, but where no one will make a fuss, um, or not enough people will make a fuss to make a difference. So that sort of worries me a little bit that we're going down a slippery slope here, mm. um, and we'll end up. Uh, back where we used to be in terms of economic policy making. But I think it, one of the things that we've noticed is, you know, the, the banks are saying, well, we need to pass this on somehow, obviously. Um, the, the cost will be borne somewhere. Um, they're posting now between the big four about $30 billion in taxes, right, in profits. Oh. Um, so um, now to... to um, you have to have vast balance sheets uh, to be able to post that amount of um, that amount of profit. What the government is saying is we're going to take 0.06% of a portion of the liabilities on, on sitting on your uh, balance sheet, particular types of uh, liabilities. Um, there was a note from UBS this week, uh, Jonathan Mott, who's um, a you know, very well-known banking analyst, saying, well, look, if they cu- cut mortgage broker fees, 
um, they, if they reduce the, the fees to mortgage brokers, then they could save, um, they could make a lot of the savings that they're going to have to pay on in this tax. Mm. The other thing that that got me thinking was the banks over the years, uh, even in a, um, sure, we've had a property boom um, and there's been a lot of demand for housing lending. Um, but the economy overall has been sort of ambling along. It hasn't been growing spectacularly well. Um, and the banks have managed to increase their profits uh, uh, in that environment. And that's been through a whole bunch of things, including efficiencies, um, laying off staff uh, and finding uh, smarter ways to do things. So, um, you know, in, in terms of the overall size of these companies, uh, something like a few hundred million dollars a year it will be for each of them, broadly speaking. Um, that's the kind of thing that you – smart businesses uh, that, at that scale um, look to sort of adjust in their, uh, in their operating mix anyway if they're being – if they're trying to run the business well. Mm -hmm. uh, so this whole thing of that it's a zero-sum game that there's um, – well, you're just going to take that money. Um, you know, sometimes these things force you to look at your business in, in, in other ways. Um, one little final point, and I'll just hand over to you, Shane, maybe to respond to that. But um, there was a, a – there's a report this morning that maybe this isn't going to collect the billion – one. 1 billion to 1.5 billion mm. that they're hoping it will um, over the next few years. Um, so what, what do you think about this position that it, it, it is, um, you know, um, it's going to be damaging to the economy and it's going to have to be uh, carried by shareholders, consumers? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, the impact is relatively minor. That, that's true. Um, and as you say, I mean, you just adjust the, uh, the mortgage broker fees and you've got part of it back. Um, uh, you could, I mean, the banks, if they do pass it on, and there's going to be pressure for them not to, that triple C looking at it, they could pass it on to investors, and then it's shared with the federal government um, if investor mortgage rates go up um, as investors get part of that back via negative gearing. So um, the economic impact, I think, will be trivial in the great scheme, and we won't notice it. Um, so in that sense, I'm, I'm not going to change any forecasts on the back of this. I, I, I guess my concern would be more the sort of it, it seems a bit ad hoc. Um, that's, I guess, the biggest issue. And um, I know the British uh, had a similar levy, but they uh, pumped money into their banks, uh, whereas the Australian taxpayer actually benefited from any support Australian government provided to Australian banks through the GFC. It was the other way around in the UK, so it was try trying to cover that. But to get the amount of revenue they wanted, they kept having to jack up the rate. That's right. I think nine times or something. Um, through through time, and, and I think if we're worried about the banks being too big, you know, I often worry about this. Why do Australians stick with the big banks? Um, why not do some of your banking somewhere else? You know, like I do, for example. Of course, you might say they'll work for AMP, <laughs> um, but um, we we don't have to stay with the big banks. I have some with the big bank. I have some elsewhere, but um, it's become an incredibly competitive environment out there. I, I just sort of perplexed as to why Australians are so sticky with the big banks and they've been able to grow their market share. Maybe they are doing a good service and that's that's why it is and we don't necessarily want to at, uh, attack that. Maybe maybe we've allowed too many mergers over the years. Maybe that's the issue that's allowed them to get so big and they're the things that should really be looked at. One of the things that Scott Morrison said was... Um, in the lead up to this was that there can be no question that the big banks enjoy uh, an awful lot of market power. And they mm. do. I and think that's do. a really obvious um, – nobody's going to quibble with that, not even the banks. But if you look to the United States, part of Trump's platform when he got elected, he was talking about trying to weaken the power of all sorts of banks. Um, how much noise did that make? 
Not very much. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, the Trump agenda is so broad and colourful, shall we say, that there were other things that people were um, and, and he says one day, one day and changes it the other day. I mean, he also wants to boost the power of the banks to lend money. He says they're not lending enough money. I can debate that one as well, but yeah. he does seem schizophrenic at times. So uh, I think I do think it's interesting that what we um, what we're you know we've got this you know amazing you know. Uh, there seems to be this anxiety and this cry of unfairness, if you like, mm. um, from the banks um, and the warnings of the potential fallout. Ken Henry apoplectic on the front page of two news- newspapers this week, um, you know, and um, you see uh, you see this coming through. Uh, in uh, for me, I, I do think it's surprising. Uh, I do think one of the failures on this is the way the budget process works, um, that a very significant piece of uh, policy reform gets announced amongst a couple of hundred other things that are announced on budget night, why not have a situation where the government comes out and says, look, here's what we're proposing to do. Here is the paper. Here are the options. This is our plan. Let's work together with the stakeholders. And then when you come the second Tuesday in May, you announce the proposals and you see its revenue impact Mm -hmm. and uh, there's, there's no surprises like we've we've gotten we've gotten mm. to, to at this point. Uh, I think there's a tra- bit of a trap um, for you know that politicians get into where well we have to have something big in the budget. Why not do something big, you know, March, April, February, and have the you know. So there's a little bit of that for me. I think a little bit of a, a trap that you know on the one hand we have this issue like who's an easy target. Boom, hit them on budget night and you get lots of headlines and yeah. the, the sort of chaos that we've I, seen. I think I, I, I guess, yeah, I always perplex as to why there's so much excitement around the budget and wonder whether that's the best approach. I, I, I can understand the bit about you've got to announce this is the size of your deficit and blah, 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 lots of stuff. But a lot of the measures, I think, could be done through the course of the year in a, in a calmer environment and that would make sense. To, I think we're one of the only countries that has such an obsession with budget night. Um, <laughs> In America, they announced Trump's budget, but everyone knows that's not really the budget. <laughs> it's the Congress that determines the budget, and he's just sort of <laughs> feeding into that. Um, and, and in the UK and in Ireland, uh, it's a speech, which the uh, Chancellor in the UK um, will, you know, uh, through the course of his uh, speech, he'll announce and he'll say, you know, taxes on cigarettes are going up this much, and everybody yeah, yeah. goes boo, and, you know, taxes on beer are going up this it's much. It's all predictable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there are a few headlines out of it, but you don't get this weeks and weeks and weeks of yeah. agonizing over... Uh, I, I, I guess my perspective as an economist, I, I can sort of see where the government's coming from, and they've had to, big picture sense, you know, look responsible, you know, we've got these measures here, we've got to finance them somewhere, they've got to do something. So I can understand all of that. I, I guess I, won, I, I worry a little bit that we get going down a bit of an ad hoc path. Um, that uh, you know, we're putting taxes here and can we really justify that? Um, like, for example, what, what happened to the, the tariff on cars? It's still there as far as I can see. It and is. yet auto production in Australia is going to stop this year. Um, what happens to that tariff going forward? Therefore, it's just a tax measure um, going forward and Australia is just being pinged but for no valid economic reason anymore. That's right. Um, I'm, I'm wondering whether that rational debate we had through the 80s and 90s going to peaking in 2000 with the GST um, has sort of all come to an end and we're now a bit, a bit of an irrational country again. We sort of randomly put things on and just, just because we need the money. So, of course, much more important to the, over, to the overall budget profile uh, is the state of the domestic economy uh, and uh, how our trade is going and all that kind of stuff. We've had um, some important data out this week. 
let's start, uh, Dave, with uh, uh, the wage price index. Um, not terribly encouraging news, is it? It's not, but it's largely in line of expectations. So we saw another uh, record low uh, for wage growth in the uh, the March quarter of this year, uh, just below uh, 1.9%. 1.9% was the figure and was banding around. But if you go and take the, uh, the rounding effect off, uh, it was a new record low. Um, particularly, uh, you saw private sector uh, wages uh, were very weak. Uh, and 0.5, and then you saw like a, a 1.8% uh, increase year on year. So... All the headlines were, were centered around that, uh, the fact that you got CPIs running at 2.1%. You've got hourly wage growth running at 1.8%. So real wages essentially are going backwards. So that was a bit of a kick in the teeth. But obviously we saw, uh, saw the day after, uh, the jobs data for April was, uh, was very strong. Yeah, Shane, um, we had uh, 37,400, um, I think positions added. And, um, but again, we have this question about the mix between part time and full time. Mm. I must admit, as an economist, I feel kind of schizophrenic. I'm writing a note one day on falls in consumer confidence and <laughs> wages and how the risks on rates are still on the downside. Not that, on my base case, there's no change in rates, but uh, wondering yeah, why I gave up on a rate cut uh, a few months ago. Um, and then we get the jobs number and yeah, 37,000, and that's on the back of 60,000 the month before the unemployment rates dipped. Um, the truth is probably all between those extremes – you know, the economy, the economic data is messy and that's consistent with sort of subpar growth, but it's not probably not collapsing, but it's not fantastic either. Um, you could paint whatever picture you want on the jobs numbers. Um, the fall in the unemployment rate was good, but then again, it's been in the same range for the last 18 months now. Um, jobs were up, but they were all part-time jobs. Full-time jobs actually fell. Um, the annual rate of jobs growth does seem to have picked up and that's consistent with forward-looking indicators, which is good. Um, but there's probably not enough in this to the hours. The hours worked actually went down. So it's, yeah, it's figure gross. that one. Figure that one out. You know, we've seen this huge increase, nearly hundred thousand jobs credit over the past two months, and uh, and hours worked has gone hours, backwards. Yeah. My uh, my theory is April was just a really weird month, uh, and even with whatever level of seasonal adjustment that you put into April, uh, the fact that there was. Uh, Easter so close to Anzac Day mm, mm. Uh, really just took a whole lot of momentum and activity um, out. People taking holidays, extra holidays that they wouldn't have, you know, in the yeah. little gap. And so that's a theory, anyway. Um, who knows if it's right? Well, the, the floating timetable of Easter does confuse stats everywhere. Um, they will we'll try and adjust for it, but it's hard to get it done perfectly. Um, another one is uh, the January February. Uh, ANZ job ads often see moves in ANZ job ads, you know, down 5%, up 10% um, around that time. That used to be something I looked at earlier in my career. But I, I, my, my take on all of this is that the Aussie economy is probably still growing. Uh, my biggest concern was probably last week when we saw the retail sales figures very weak for the March quarter, just 0.1% in real terms. And the trade numbers look like detract from growth. So it looks like we had negative growth in the September quarter, good bounce back in the December quarter, and we we could be back down close to zero, depending on what investment and other things do in the in the March quarter. And household consumption looking pretty yeah, pretty limp, pretty ordinary. And you can sort of understand when they're they're hardly getting any wage increases. So that that sort of I, I think a bit of a concern, and then makes me question whether the Reserve Bank and the the budget numbers are a bit too on the optimistic side. I think they certainly are on the wages numbers. But that, oh yes, that, my that, favorite uh, my favorite number in the budget: three point seven five percent wages growth in just about three years' time. Yeah. 
How, well, how is I, that going to happen? I, I know. Well, the, the slack in the labor market, right, is a, the, and the RBA has been talking increasingly about this, that this is now a focus for them, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, um, you might have an unemployment rate at 5.7%, but there seems to be what 5%, 7, 5.7% unemployment rate looks like now is different to what it meant mm. five years ago. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it might be even a little bit stronger than, r- relatively speaking, 5.7% might be good, mm. whereas five, five, ten years ago, certainly 5.7% would have seemed uh, mm. quite high There's, because of this changing uh, picture that we're getting of, of, of the workforce. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, they only publish the, uh, what they call labour underutilisation numbers, which adds standard unemployment with underemployment. Um, the last reading was 14.6%. That was in February. So we'll get an update on that in May. They only published that once a quarter. But I think that's the key in all of this. And that very high level of underemployment means that workers just have very little bargaining power at the moment. Um, and, you know, we've seen the jobs numbers bounce. We had strong periods in there a year or two ago, and weak periods in there. But the wage growth numbers have been coming down. Someone pointed out to me a graph of – it's a classic one of those blowing in the wind graphs. You know, this is mm. the wage price index, and this is the – the RBA did this themselves. This is our wage yes. forecast in 2010. 12, and it's the, – you've always got the wage numbers going up, and we're down the bottom here. Guess what? We've got the wages numbers going up. Now, I, I'm not criticising the RBA. I reckon my wages forecast look exactly the same as that. But something has changed, and um, it's just taking a lot longer to get back to normal, whatever normal is. And 3.75% gets us close to back the wages growth we saw through the pre-GFC years when we had the mining boom going on. Why was that happening? Because if you're a truck driver, you you get 80,000 in in Sydney or Melbourne, um, you go across to the uh, mining centres and get 180,000 to drive your truck. That was pushing everyone's wages up. That's right. It's hard to see that coming back anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, where where would that kind of uh, those kind of increases come from now, Dave? What uh, can I get just a bit more from your your perspective on this? Three point seven five percent by twenty 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 one, I think, is incredibly optimistic. Um, you're seeing globally uh, and in jurisdictions like the United States and the UK, uh, where we've got uh, unemployment rates significantly lower than what we have in Australia, and they are struggling to get any wage growth whatsoever. Uh, in the UK, uh, where they've got uh, unemployment rate sub 5%, uh, their real wages are going backwards as well. Um, you can go and argue that uh, maybe terms of trade might go and uh, remain elevated. I think that's very, very unlikely to go and help boost national incomes that would go gradually flow through to, uh, to workers. Um, but it's very optimistic. And uh, Shane, I have seen that chart as well. I wrote a couple of pieces about that. I think uh, it's uh, seventh time lucky or seventh heaven on this occasion. So they showed the uh, the previous six forecasts. And it's for people like, you know, thinking at home uh, and, and listening to the podcast, think of the Nike swoosh. And each year they've got the big Nike swoosh going up, showing, oh, no, it's bottoming now and it's going to go and pick up. Uh, that's been doing for the last six years. And uh, each time it's been revised lower. And then they've said it's going to go and happen this year. So um, take the uh, 3.75% with a grain of salt. Uh, I think everyone would love to go and see that and, and potentially more but uh, the way things are at the moment and given other factors such as technological change uh, the, the structure of the labour market the increased uh, prevalence of, uh, of casualisation uh, and, and part-time workers I think it's very very unlikely Thank you for giving me a perfect segue into this final segment uh, which is uh, I wanted to just quickly touch on uh, the, the coming revolution in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Earlier this week, I did a f- what I 
thought was a fascinating interview, um, if I may say so myself. <laughs> um, but it was my subject uh, who was fascinating. His name is Ian Golden, and he's Professor of Globalization and Development at Oxford. Uh, and he runs uh, an Oxford program on uh, technological and economic change, which brings together hundreds of academics and business leaders and economists um, to think about how the world is being, uh, the global economy is being changed by technology. He believes the world is on the brink of a premature deindustrialization. Uh, he's an optimist, but because he thinks all sorts of new activity will spring to life as a result of this, but he thinks there's a big shock coming because he basically the conventional model is that you uh, an economy moves from agriculture to manufacturing and uh, industry and then on to services and china is a perfect example of that uh, big industry you know it's, they've had, had this huge industrialization program uh, but now they're managing the transition through to uh, more services or services being a larger component of the economy he thinks that this assumption through machine learning and artificial intelligence, that development path will no longer be there. He says there'll be a production system that is determined by the price of capital, not the price of labor, and that capital is much cheaper in the advanced economies rather than in emerging economies. So it'll be cheaper basically to uh, install robots and have machine intelligence uh, in advanced economies than it will be in places like China, Philippines, etc., um, now, uh, obviously, what this does is it takes a whole. He, he calls this this reshoring. Uh, so we used to have offshoring, but he says you'll have a reshoring of manufacturing to advanced economies uh, and s some other tasks, but that there won't be people uh, employed in those roles. Um, Shane, uh, it's a fascinating area. It's very big picture stuff. This stuff is going. It's it's happening very quickly in some ways, uh, but it's going to take. It's still going to take longer periods of time for us to for people to see the impact of this in your daily in their daily lives. How do you think about it? Uh, well, I think about it with concern, but I guess I also, as an economist, you have some historical perspective that says, "Well, we've been through these changes before, and we do do adjust." The the, the concern is, um, as you say, there lots of emerging countries have gone down this path of agriculture, manufacturing, services. Um, our near neighbours, Singapore uh, uh, in particular, is a classic one that went through that path and now they have a living standard the same as ours. But um, other countries may not have that path open to them because the jobs simply won't be there in the emerging world initially in manufacturing. Um, uh, you know, if, if Trump wants the jobs to come back to the US, the factories to come back to the US, how are they going to do it and remain competitive? Well, they're going to do it with robots. Uh, his policies might actually speed it up if he pushes too hard. It won't bring the jobs back. It'll bring the, fa the factories back, but they'll be run by robots. Um, but also services. You know, you could argue, well, a country like India has jumped over all of that to the services sector. Um, but a lot of those call centres we now use will one day be run by, um, by machines that we talk to. Um, and that those sorts of jobs won't be there. So it's a, it's a big concern, I think, for the emerging world. Um, I, I guess a couple of uh, qualifications. One, one is that this will all take time. People give the example of the car, the automated car, um, self-driving car. Um, yes, that will come, but it will probably take a while to get there. And just as we saw in the shift from the horse, I've sent a classic photo of uh, uh, Fifth Avenue, I think it is, in uh, New York, uh, 1905, horses everywhere. There was one car in the picture. Yeah. Zip Ford, just eight years, 2013. In fact, it was Easter Sunday of both years, 2013. Where's the horse? The horse has vanished. And so the whole world changed overnight. Now, of course, um, 
but it was it took eight years to get that to happen, so it would have gradually crept in. People who have lost jobs in the horse-related industry, <laughs> obviously jobs were created elsewhere, and I suspect that the same will happen here. Um, you think about typical suburbs in Australia. Um, when I was growing up, my suburb had, uh, what, three milk bars, and that was about it. Um, nowadays, there's, I think, something like 15 cafes and yoga centres and meditation centres. So people have sort of migrated on to other things, and you can question the value of these other things. But as an economist, you'd say they still have value, um, and that, that's where the opportunities will be. So two points there. Yes, this stuff is very scary, what it means for middle-income workers who um, – do a lot of this stuff that we're now being replaced by machines, what it means for the emerging world. But there, there will be a transition period. So therefore, that's a, a role for, for government to ease that transition period. And I think other things will pop up. As long as it doesn't happen overnight, um, as long as it's phased in over time, I think spending will shift on to other areas and other industries will come up and fill the gap, as we've been seeing in recent times. Think of this. When I was born in 1960. 25% of Australian workers were employed in manufacturing. Today, it's about nine, 8 or 9%. Um, so if you were, you were told that was going to happen overnight, then mass job loss in Australia um, turned out that other jobs came along. And, Indeed. And we managed to survive. I think we've probably got a higher proportion of the population employed today than we had back in 1960, given allow women coming to the workforce. So yeah. um, key is, is adjustment, having time to adjust, but other, other industries will come along. Dave, can I get your take on this quickly? Sounds great for productivity, um, but of course the uh, the flip side to that is the uh, the social aspect and the uh, and how the sense of uh, a human's worth and uh, you know having a job and uh, and contributing uh, and not having. I just wonder about you know how people and how society would react if uh, you know machines start replacing humans and then humans can't go and find legitimate ways to go and earn income and the social ramifications that could go and evolve from that. Uh, it's going to happen, uh, and as Shane says, hopefully it will be over time, but uh, government's going to have a very big say in uh, the speed that this goes, and the legislation that's governing the use of AI and uh, and robotics uh, will need to be watched very carefully and, uh, and considered carefully as well, because if you rush this too fast and too quickly, it has the potential to go and eliminate great swathes of jobs uh, that people have at the moment. Uh, people don't have work. We'll see what happens in the past when that occurs. Just think of this. I'm told that you can buy a program which will write an article for you. Yes, that's true. So, I've seen these at work. So um, we got very excited about this. You know. <laughs> we'll write stuff on this. But one question is the quality of those articles. Um, I mean, I know what they've done. They've sorted through the whole library of information that's in the computer system and what have you. Um, but if you look at the articles, I, I'm yet to see one which makes any sense. They can do them for uh, match reports for various sports. Yeah. So you can it follows the progression of the game, the penalties, etc., mm. and then a robot. But can that spin follows a mechanical process. It's a bit like the share market. You've seen that joke sort of uh, template for what the share market did today. The share market rose fell today because mm. worries about interest rates going up. Blah, blah, blah. It, it is filling the and the machine would just work work that out fairly easily. But if you want to um, do anything on. Uh, uh, Donald Trump's uh, policies, given the political risk around him, I, I think a machine would struggle with that Absolutely. immensely. It may help you find relevant research, um, but in terms of putting it together in a way that's interesting and makes sense, 
um, I, I reckon we're many, many years away from a machine being able to do that sort of Plus, stuff. Plus, like one of the, one of the key things too. Uh, this is my personal perspective, but uh, I think people like a bit of personality and like you know having having a person go and explain something and perhaps like in their twisted mind, you know, putting my hand up right now. Sometimes I you know people like to go and have like you know, a person's taken a view on things rather than a machine just saying X Y Z did this at yeah. X Y Z time. That's uh, that's not really going to go and excite too many people, in my opinion. Uh, it, it certainly is one of the. Um, it's a, if you uh, go back and have a listen to this interview, uh, one of the things that he covers off in there uh, is that he thinks that governments and politics is stuck in a pre-technological uh, revolution mindset. Governments aren't ready, and they don't understand the challenges that are coming from um, from this, uh, and they're also stuck in a pre globalization mindset where you, um, you end up with political systems having what we're seeing in advanced economies around the world now, this sort of uh, increasing sort of nationalistic uh, color or streak uh, in, in, um, in, in certain types of uh, – in certain well, corners of politics. people want to go back to the first half of Pleasantville when everything was black and white, nice and simple and controlled. That's right. um, the reality is that we can't. Um, Trump was trying to do that. It was trying to do that in the US, you know, bringing manufacturing back. But the trouble is, it doesn't resonate. The last budget, I think, had a lot on technology. Yeah, yet again, Australia trying to become a smart nation. Um, but my understanding is it was all dropped because it doesn't resonate in focus groups. Mm. That Australians uh, can't get their mind around that. The sort innovation of stuff. boom didn't excite you. You're seriously. <laughs> <laughs> And it certainly has been one thing noticeable about the budget that that yeah absolutely it, it, that agenda seems to have been dropped. I think for me, what I see is that the necessity of creating new types of industries and being creative about how you lay how with the, the role government can play in laying platforms for new industries to grow and develop still remains is still going to remain absolutely essential. Uh, as we go forward uh, that show um, you can uh, it's the next show back uh, for I iTunes subscribers so you can find it in there or uh, you can just search Google for Ian Golden Business Insider and the, his surname is spelt G-O-L-D-I-N um, so one final note uh, last week Mark Colvin the great journalist and broadcaster died in Sydney Mark was, to me, as he was to so many others in Australian journalism, a good friend and something of a mentor. Mark and I would sometimes get together at the Australian Youth Hotel in Glebe uh, in Sydney um, with friends or sometimes just the two of us and we'd have a few beers and some food and talk journalism, books, politics and whatever else came up. Uh, he had, as with many subjects, a great understanding of Ireland, uh, particularly the troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, which he reported on uh, when based out of London for the ABC. Um, there have been some very touching tributes to the man over the past few days. For example, Tony Jones, the Q&A host, told a story on the special edition of Foreign Correspondent the other night that he was inspired to get into broadcasting after hearing Mark's reporting on the radio. But I'd like to share with our listeners one little story about Mark uh, and this podcast. I sent him the very first episode we did, which was around a, a year ago. Of course, as with anything new, I didn't know if it was any good, if I had managed to string a sentence together properly or make any sense at all. About an hour later, he called me, very excited, saying it was excellent and what great promise it had. Of course, he had some quote-unquote constructive feedback for me on what we were doing. Uh, but this was a little confidence boost that was incredibly welcome and useful. So he's had a little hand in this show, and in the stories people have been telling about him since he died, there are just so many other examples of his incredible generosity, uh, coaching and encouragement and friendship to people from all walks of life over the years. 
he's a fine journalist and a great guy and a great loss to his family, uh, his friends, his colleagues, and, of course, many, many listeners uh, who he brought stories to over the years. Uh, we'll miss you, Mark. Uh, so you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. The guests this week, uh, Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Shane, great having you back. It's been my pleasure. And Dave, uh, great to have you back on the show. Band back together. The band is back together. Look forward to next week. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is on iTunes under Devils and Details, where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S, and you can find us all, Shane Oliver, David Scott, and Paul Colgan, on Twitter individually. We'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.